Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Good to have you with us on another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, we have a rare in-depth interview with songwriter John D. Loudermilk. John D. Loudermilk passed away in 2014. As I mentioned, this is a rare interview. You will not find many with him. I thought about interviewing John D. Loudermilk a few years back. I was told by one of the foremost experts on John D. Loudermilk that he does not give interviews, and that's that. Give up. I was given his mailing address, and I decided to write him a note. I will never forget this. I was hanging out at a coffee shop with the songwriter Bruce Birch, who is a good friend of mine, and that's when John D. Loudermilk called. Bruce Birch being a true lover of songs, he was excited to hear the interview. I'm excited to present this to you all. John D. Loudermilk wrote a lot of songs. Probably one of his most famous compositions would be Indian Reservation, which was a number one hit for Paul Revere and the Raiders. He also wrote Ebony Eyes for the Everly Brothers, A Rose and a Baby Ruth for George Hamilton IV. He also wrote Abilene for George Hamilton IV, one of the most well-known George Hamilton recordings. His songs were recorded by so many people. He had so many cuts. Johnny Cash, Marianne Faithful, Moe Allison, Stonewall Jackson, Chet Atkins, Jimmy Buffett, Jerry Lee Lewis, Nora Jones, Roy Orbison, Connie Francis. Of course, I couldn't leave out David Lee Roth's recording of his song Tobacco Road, which was a very successful recording. I feel very fortunate to have been able to interview John D. Loudermilk. I hope you all enjoy this interview. I would like to think that in some way I can keep his memory and his songs alive. He was a songwriter who wrote some very interesting songs. Let's get into it. One critic, Jim Fowler, said that John D. Loudermilk was one of the unsung heroes of pop music. It is our pleasure to welcome songwriter John D. Loudermilk. Glad to meet you, my friend Paul. And Jim Fowler is his name, eh? Let me write his name down. I may have to call him <laughs> and have a good chat with him and thank him for that nice compliment. Uh, how are you doing? I am doing well. I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for doing this. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm at this time, I'm sitting in our home in Tennessee and looking at my website and trying to get some. So I've got it up in case you I've forgotten some of the things. I'll have some help here and I was just uh, just looking at the website kind of makes me think of the past here a little bit. I've been writing for for ever since 1956. During that time, I've written about 12, 1300 songs, and I've had 300 and some up recorded, close to 400 of them recorded by about 1200 artists. Just looking at my my website, of course you can't believe all websites, but I can believe. This one, because I live this one. <laughs> what is the website address? It is John D. Loudermilk, and then you, uh, and then you, after you get that up, you, you, it's little i, little h, little 
little e s a uh, little s and little n dot com. I a little i little h little e little s little n dot com, and that'll lead you into uh, four or five pages of songs over the years. It's uh, they're listed in the uh, like from fifty six to sixty, and from the, and then from the uh, 63 to 69 and 70 and later and all that. And so it's just a kind of a nice uh, kind of a fella in the Netherlands, a Mr. Keys. He's a fan and he's put this thing together over the years and it's quite a work. And he's, man, you talk about a, a wonderful guy and what, what a fan. And uh, his son had started it and then his son got married and, and left and, and uh, left this whole thing in his father's hands, and he's just done it over as a, as a hobby over the years. I know a lot of stuff. I've learned a lot of stuff about myself on it, things <laughs> I've, forgotten, I've forgotten over the years. But it's quite a, quite a nice thing. And I, sometimes when I get blue, I just get on my website and get my, get my chops up again, you know, and just, wow, I did that. <laughs> It certainly is a great resource for anyone looking for information about the songs of John D. Loudermilk. It's I-H-E-S-M dot com. That's right. He's pretty well uh, taken care of collecting stuff that usually writers have to do themselves. But yeah, I've got uh, all kinds of lists in, in here. And... A lot of people would say that you're a songwriter. How would you define John D. Loudermilk? He's a totally illiterate, very corny, uh, hum and strum kind of guy who sings his heart, you know, and uh, I mean, writes it. I don't sing a lot of the stuff. I I had a chance to to sing. I, I've had so many chances. The music business was so wide open when I came to Nashville. I could have, well, I did produce and I did sing. I, had, I was on RCA Victor. And had several records on there, on there, and and I, I produced and I published. I published my tunes and and, and I did. Uh, I even won a Grammy for a for a back of an album one time. So there's a lot of different areas that you can work in the music business. And I met a couple of writers named Boodle and Felice Bryant. They were Daka froze when I went over there, and they were so convincing. Uh, they were so happy at home. Uh, their son now runs BMI. They were so happy at home and such a happy family. They encouraged us. Uh, they, they really did influence me, and and he talked me into writing. They said, now you can go out and do gigs and be on the road the rest of your life, keeping the back end of a bus warm. The guys who stay home and write the songs are, have a much better life, and so I... They and Chet Atkins and a couple more people, Orville Campbell from Chapel Hill, they all suggested I do that, and I took their um, I took their advice, and I was so I'm so glad I did, because I have a nice I have a family now of uh, three young men that are all in the entertainment business, and and I have a, a wonderful wife of 41 years, and we live out in the country, and we're just as happy as two peas and two peas in the pod. So I always try to suggest that when people ask me about the music business to encourage people to write. It's uh, it's it's quite a quite an interesting life, and I've been doing it now for fifty six years. Amazing. Yeah. When you think about all those blessings in your life, 
What is the best thing about being John D. Loudermilk? I was born, man. <laughs> That's the best thing. I don't have a contract, you know. None of us do. We don't have contracts. And if, when you're born, you, you're given a, a heck of a gift. I don't know. I just can't whine about a lot. Not when you've got this plan. Just think of the, being born at this time in this country, in the South. And being a man, you know, it's, it's worse if you're a woman. I mean, they have a tougher time than men do. And then, of course, if you're born in the South, that's a blessing, too. And if and, and into a music that is so pure and so esoterically uh, valid, that like country music, and I guess rock and roll, too, to some extent, has been and has kept itself. Over the years, it's just just a wonderful thing to be a part of something really worthwhile, I, I think. To just count your blessings, gee whiz. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how in the what, what I must have done in the last life to deserve this. <laughs> so many people are unhappy. That's true. Yeah. But I had good parents, man. Good my, my father couldn't write his name, couldn't read his name. He was a carpenter. And my mother was a seamstress. And during the Depression, they lost everything. And and the Salvation Army helped them. And so they kind of devoted the rest of their lives to Salvation Army. And that's where I learned my first music, from my mother and from the, the brass band that I played in at the Salvation Army. And working with just people off the streets, you, you see the, a lot of the, the pathos in life. And uh, I think I, I drew on all of that stuff to write the songs I've written over the years. So you would say that just being out there, like observing people on the street, has been an inspiration for your songwriting. Being up where? Just being out there, just observing life as it's happening. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, and see, that's the thing about it, is making, is making a living at it. If you, uh, there's, there's a lot of street philosophers on the street, I mean... But it's hard to make a living at it. I had a, a major writer who's uh, really a well. If I were to tell you his name, you'd, you'd certainly recognize it. But he, his wife came to me the other day and she said, "What? We've got a son that wants to be a philosopher. We've got a one son who's a doctor and one daughter who's a lawyer, and our third child wants to be a philosopher and he wants to go to Duke. And uh, and so, what would you suggest me doing?" I said, well, his daddy is a philosopher. He makes something out of nothing. I said, that's what he ought to learn to do is to make something out of nothing. Ever since then, I've gotten ideas, and I called her up, and I said, now, this is a great little book for you, <laughs> son. He could do this and that with it, and uh, blah, blah, blah. But I've been thinking about that little fella. Because he, that's pretty brave for a kid to say he wants to be a philosopher. But does he want to be a, what kind of philosopher does he want to do? If he goes to school and learns about the Greek philosophies and, and all the guys real old and all, he'll get a, a spoiled vision of reality. And then he won't know how to react to, to people in, next to him on the bus or something. I suggested that he go, that he, that they put the tuition, the first, first $75,000 a year, that's what they're getting at Duke. Put $75,000 in the bank and tell him to go out and get a job and just just kind of horse around and find, work at one job till they offer you the assistant managership and change jobs because that, that, that you're just going to be teaching the next guy how to replace you. So just keep changing jobs 
until you find something that you really like and then take that $75,000 and go and get in business with it and do it. And then you can go to school after you've, uh, after you've got your feet on the ground and know what you want to do and make a little money. Then you can go to school and you can learn the stuff after you grow up. But man, I, I didn't, I didn't realize anything till I was, oh, well, the Cherokees say you're 50, that you're, you're not grown until you're 50. I had a chance to, to know them real well six, seven years ago now when they gave me the first award, Medal of Honor award, the, the Cherokees out in Tahlequah. Man, I learned something about, about the Indians. I, I did, I had no idea. I said my mother, both my mother and daddy were, were highly Indian. My father was almost the whole Indian. So, uh, I had come, I had watched them over the years like, uh, I'd come in at night. I'd always had a bunch of jobs, and while I was making, I was decorating windows, I was doing sign painting, I was doing a lot of stuff, you know, and and same time doing gigs with my little bluegrass band dances and stuff. And I'd come in at uh, in the afternoons, and they'd be sitting in the living room, and the lights wouldn't be on, no lights in the house, and they'd just be sitting there, staring out the window, just sitting quietly, watching it get dark. I'd say, well, you got to turn on some lights, man. And they'd turn on lights. But I caught them doing that several times. Then when I got out into uh, uh, Oklahoma and started talking with some of the medicine men out there, I found out that the Native Americans used to do that. They used to watch it get dark. And they would watch it get light. (laughs) And then... I would imagine you could figure out the whole thing was round after a while after you did that for a while. But I could just talk forever on any subject you bring up as long as I've been around it. They say that's what you do well when you get older, and I'm 77 now, and (laughs) I like to talk. So I adore giving interviews and talking about stuff as it comes along. That's all a a songwriter does. He just uh, hums, you know, at the same time he talks. (laughs) That's the way it seems, you know. When was the first time you remember performing music? When was the first time I performed music? It was when I was six years old. My daddy was working in the the shipyards up in Norfolk, Virginia, in uh, Portsmouth. You couldn't get ukulele. My mother had a guitar. She had been a missionary in Cherokee County, North Carolina. She had a guitar, but I was too small. My fingers wouldn't reach. And so my daddy brought back some glue from the, because uh, you couldn't get glue during the war. And so he brought back some glue from the shipyard and built me a little ukulele out of, out of uh, plywood, real, real thin plywood. And we strung it up, he strung it up, and and Mother taught me to play it, and I played with my mother, and she played guitar, and we played in the Salvation Army Sunday night service, Life's Railway to Heaven. That was the first time I ever performed. And then, of course, I, I sang in, in religious things. Every time it was required, I would, I would sing in religious songs. And, of course, the Grand Ole Opry, my mother and daddy listened to that. And on Saturday night, I'd take a bath in the tub in the li- in the kitchen, in this big old uh, galvanized tub, and listen to the Grand Ole Opry on this little, little radio up on top of the kitchen cabinet. I just, that was kind of what I cut my teeth on. And then I got into high school and got into Fats Domino and guys like that. 
Then I've just put them two together, I guess, and, and came to Nashville and started <laughs> redoing my past, uh, just a, a new version of it. Can you remember the first time you wrote anything? Not necessarily a song, but maybe poetry, anything at all. Yes, I was I was given recently a book by my wife of a poet that was published in the Durham Morning Herald. Every morning there was a little poem and it was I would read that poem and it was those poems were just wonderful and Metcalf was the guy's name. He had a regular thing that every so several years they they published a poem a day. And I used to read those poems. I didn't have a classical, oh, God, I, I don't know what I'd have done if I'd had classical music in my early life. I would probably tried to write the first line and, and gone on to selling shoes or something because I wasn't trained classically, although I did study classical guitar a little bit uh, before I came to Nashville. But, yes, just very simple poetry. And then I'm, the first song I wrote, I think, was Can't Play This Guitar Anymore Because My Fingers Are Getting Sore, or something really heavy like that. I forgot what the, what the lyrics were, but it was something that a kid, 12, 13 years old, would write. And then uh, I went through a series of, of jobs that were very, very good for me, good for a young man, uh, including house painting, and trim carpentering, and... Uh, doing labor things that my dad would get for me. And I learned real quickly, I didn't want to be in the construction business. It was just too hard for me. As I grew up, I took little, uh, I learned to play the fiddle, and I played the bass, and I played the guitar, and I played trumpet and trombone. And, and But I didn't play those out publicly because I wasn't good at them. The strings is what were so sensitive I was sensitive to. The horns just about blew, but I couldn't see where anybody would get tenderness out of a horn. Until later on, I, f- I heard good trumpets, you know. And But at that time, up in Durham, you were either a country musician or you were a, a big band musician. So uh, I did a lot of it, a, a little bit of it all, and, and go out and play gigs. And then uh, we were playing at a shrine dance. This fella came up, and he said, I'm a contractor. And he said, I'm remodeling the TB sanatorium in, uh, uh, in uh, Durham, in, in that town. And we're going to make a television station. It's going to be Durham's first television station. And it's going to be called WTVD. And said, are you, uh, what kind of work do you do uh, other than music? I said, I'm painting signs. And he says, so, so you're not, so they're, they're needing an art director. Would you be interested? And I said, yes. Well, look, when you're a kid out struggling and you will t- or never say, no, I can't do that. Just say yes and then get in there and Google it and learn how to do it and go to the next day and do it. Except in big stuff like medicine and things. They, they, they kind of frown on that. <laughs> so I went to the guy who uh, who was my teacher, Mr. Tidd, the T-I-D-D, there in Durham. And I said, do you have any art that you've done? And he said, yeah, I've got some. And he was a good oil painter. He did wonderful uh, landscapes and stuff. And so I said, could I borrow several of your pictures? He said, yes. I got. I looked at all of them, and I chose the ones that were not fine. And so I took those over to the television station and laid those out in front of the program director and said, these are mine. He said, did you paint those? I said, oh, yeah. 
And so he gave me the job, man, of art director. So I had to paint sets. I didn't know how to paint sets, so I had to go find somebody to tell me how to paint sets. I had to make slides and cue cards and all kinds of stuff for the television to get it on the air, which I did. And so one day I was, they had a show on, it was a, it was a noon show and they did news and they had a lady that showed cooking, how to cook things and all. I was in a little trio with a drum and a, and a blind piano player and myself. Just a song came to me uh, down uh, in my office and I wrote it down and I did it for my, for my little portion of the show that day and the, switchboard lit up and people started calling in one of those calls was a guy from chapel hill who had a newspaper there and he had just found andy griffith and he had another artist that was george hamilton the fourth his name was and he said i'd like for you to come over and put that song on the tape and i did i had to go to the national guard uh, the next week down to fayetteville for a couple of weeks when I got back, George had recorded the song, and it was already on the charts in Baltimore. And I said, well, look, this was my song, man. I wanted to record it. And so Orville told me, he said, John, sit down. I want to tell you something. He said, John, you don't have charisma. And I said, well, what the hell is that? And he said, <laughs> he said okay, here's a dictionary. Look it up. And so I looked it up and sat right there. And I looked up and looked him in his face, and he was grinning. And I said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and he said, well, let me suggest that you write songs instead of singing them. You write them, and you'll have a happy life. He, he was a good friend of Kay Kaiser's and knew a lot of people in, in music business. And so I took his advice. I came to Nashville, and the other people told me the same thing, so I stuck with that. That's been a, the greatest thing. I was able to have that professional advice so early in my career. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was the first song, Rose and Baby Ruth, it was. And it's been recorded by over 300 artists. Amazing. Yeah, down through the years. It's a great song, in my opinion. Yeah, well, thank you. It, it's been a good one to me, I'll tell you that. It's been a bunch of people record it, and it's been... Signature songs for, I don't know, a dozen artists around the world. Our special guest is songwriter John D. Loudermilk. In addition to the other people that have recorded your songs, you also have recorded your own songs. Yes, I have. I had a couple of hits. Well, I had several records. Ooby Dooby Dooby, yes. Language of Love was a hit of mine. It got into the top 12, 13, but it was a teenage lyric, and I just couldn't see myself at 50 in some little uh, lizard lounge singing uh, ooby dooby doo <laughs> fatting with a gold chain around my neck. <laughs> and so I just would rather write. A whole lot better for me to write than to sing. I know what they were talking about now with this charisma thing. That, uh, you do it. There's back home in Durham, the music business was uh, looked down upon, especially country music. It was looked on as, oh, I don't, just not, not all that pleasant. But then you come out to Nashville and you see the divisions of the music. And you can choose whichever division you want to get in. I mean, just look at the people who are doing that particular division and 
and check them out and go to their houses and see how their lives are going. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. I wanted to ask you about your song, Sitting in the Balcony. Sitting in the Balcony. Yes, after I got started getting royalties, I went to Campbell University. It was Campbell College back then. They had a, every day you had to go to, to a chapel. So I was up there one day, bored to death with what I was hearing, and I just wrote this song, Sitting in the Balcony, and it was about sitting in the balcony. We sat in, the, my seat was in the balcony, and so I just wrote it about that. And Eddie Cochran cut it. Uh, I cut it first, and Eddie Cochran cut it. He had a big smash on it, and, and then wrapped himself around a tree in England a few years later and, and died. The boy died real early. I never met him. I think I would have liked him. He seemed like a real nice kid. There's a bunch of nice people in the music business. The ones that are not worth meeting or de- dealing with, you just have to listen to the wind. I mean, you just have to listen to the people who who are around those people and just don't get around those people. I've run across some really, really fine people in the music business, and Chet Atkins is one of them. I'm, they've done, they're doing a big show here at the Hall of Fame, Country Music Hall of Fame on Chet. I'm going to be speaking next uh, a couple of weeks from now. At the Hall of Fame on my association with him, I knew him fairly well, and uh, we did some crazy, wild things together and just had the most fun. And he said, "Yeah, you ought to, he told me too, he said, you should, you should write. He said, I always wished I had written. I said, well, I'm glad you learned to play the guitar along the way, man. <laughs> I had the great chance to write him a, a song which was one of his signature songs called Windy and Warm. He came to me one day and he said, uh, write me a song I'm too far into jazz. He said, i got to get out of jazz. And there are intellectual limits that define the genres of music. See? Uh, I wrote him I said, well, take me to, show me your past. So we got in the car and went up to Luttrell, Tennessee to his hometown and and he introduced me to his daddy, and, and uh, his daddy was a violin teacher up there. We came back, and I wrote the, wrote the song, Windy and Warm, for him. And now there's, I don't know how many guitar players have, have recorded that song. They just keep on recording stuff over the years. But he, oh, he was just a marvelous, marvelous guy. <laughs> I'll always remember that man. He was the sweetest thing in the world. He could wink at you, and you knew. Uh, he, he could wink better than any guy, but he'd wink during a session when he'd do a lick. Yeah, he'd wink at you because he knew it had gone over, you know. Yeah, he was top. So. I've known some wonderful, wonderful guys in this business. Do you think it's important for songwriters to listen to a lot of different types of music? Well, it depends on what their taste is. Uh, a lot of people are narrowly focused. A lot of people shoot their their mind shoots shotgun shells. A, a, a sawed-off shotgun shell will scatter the forest. And a lot of people are talented uh, so that they can go each shot. They can go into a musical genre. Chet was that way. He could play anything. Matter of fact, I took him a piece of music called El Hombre. Terrega wrote it. It was an early guitar piece just after Segovia became famous and made the guitar famous. And and uh, Chet learned that he could play anything. He was he was kind of like a sawed-off shotgun. He could play anything where the, wherever the shot went. He could play. And then you have people who are pistol-oriented, narrow with their focus, and they can only play certain stuff. Uh, only mm-hmm. play 
certain stuff, and uh, they they don't have a wide range of uh, view. I don't think, you know, kids coming along now, writers coming along now, they have, gee whiz, they can play all kinds of music. So I could only play country music, folk music. Bellafani was a big influence in my life as well. I could only play folk music, country music, and big band pop music. And then, of course, rock and roll came about from the, from all of them put together. But it, it's better now. For The kids are coming along now with honest to God. They they just set those little guitars on fire, and I just love to listen to them. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful time to watch these kids go go through. Uh, my wife and I started the Songwriters Guild of America in Nashville. It, it was it was uh, up in New York and out in California back in the seventies. It'd been there fifty years. Berlin had started it back then, you know, way back, and so but it never come to Nashville and. Uh, and so I said, well, let's bring it to Nashville. And so Susie and I brought it to Nashville, and we got 2,700 writers in it now. Wow. Yeah, but they teach you how to, what the contracts, whatever, that everything is negotiable, you know. But when we came to town, we didn't know anything about that. But the writers do now, and we we work with some of them. They're always calling what do I do? Should I get married or what? You know, and <laughs> don't ask me that, man. If you got a good one, definitely as quickly as possible and arrange it so you can marry every day the same one <laughs> over and over and over. Because it's that good. It really is that good. And they say, well, what? Tell me something. What should I do? And I said, there's only two words. There's only two words. And they say, what is it? And I said, don't lie. Don't lie. Don't lie. It's that simple. It's it, it really is. If you tell a lie and your wife finds out about it, she'll never believe another word you say. And shouldn't. And I never did hear that. So I was advised wrongly about that in my young life. But don't lie. And that's what they, you know, when a guy takes a, a Leo, takes a, a an oath to be in the politics or be in anything, and he holds his right hand up, and puts his hand on the Bible and says, I will do thus and so and thus and so. And if they catch him lying, they ought to incarcerate that son of a gun. Put him and, and well, try him for lying, because lying is a tremendous sin, man. It's a tremendous breaking of the law. When you think about it, now you think about it. Is, is, lie, is there such thing as a white lie? I don't know. But I know there's such thing as a lie. It's just not the thing to do. And uh, that's what I think we're, we're letting people get by with lies. And we don't stop them and call them on them. But I know one thing. I, I learned the hard way. Don't lie. And that's what I tell the kids. Or people want to know about it. And I say, don't lie. Duh. Right? <laughs> Duh. That's right. What about the song that you wrote? You call it Joggin' that most Allison recorded. Well, Bill Clinton was the one I got the idea from. Really? You call it jogging, I call it running around. You come home from running with your head all wet, smelling like shampoo instead of sweat. <laughs> You're dragging that silly old towel, towel all over town. You call it jogging, I call it running around. <laughs> Clever song. Yeah, and let's see, Jimmy Buffett had a cut on it, too, and I went down and played guitar for him. He cut that down in Alabama. 
that will someday be a hit because I've had a lot of songs to do that, especially overseas. They hit overseas first, and then they come back over here through the back door. I've had that happen a lot of times. There's a song that you wrote, Tobacco Road. I wanted to know what you thought of David Lee Roth's version. Well, I'm looking at the gold record on the wall right now that we got as a result of it with his makeup, you know. Yeah, he did a fine version. How do I know? All I know is it's a version of a thought I had. I can't tell if it's a good version or a bad version. That is determined by the group of people who are responsible for supporting that particular artist that makes that product. You understand that? Yes, sir. We're talking with songwriter John D. Loudermilk. Do you have a favorite song that you've written? Okay, my my favorite song out of the songs I've written, yeah, I'd say I'd say Tobacco Road because it's autobiographical. Every writer writes at one time or another writes an autobiographical biography, I mean a, a song about his life. That's mine. So it's about an area in, uh, up in North Carolina. Well, there were a lot of tobacco roads. Every town that was that had cigarette factories or any tobacco industry at all had a tobacco road. They call it Tobacco Road. Mine was, in Durham, there was a little place. I was delivering telegrams. I went to this place, man. I mean, you wouldn't go there now without a, you know, without a tank. But I went on the bicycle with a flashlight with a whole handful of money orders on Saturday night, man. And it was a rough joint. All the lights were off, and each port, about five or six houses there, it was called Marvin's Alley was the name of it, but it was known as the Tobacco Road. And each frame house had a different light bulb, a different color of light bulb on the porch, a real dim one. And so you go to the door and you knock, and the lights come on all over the house, and there were people all in the house, man, but the lights were off, and nobody was making any fuss at all. And as soon as they turned on the lights, everybody started talking. It was surreal, and I would give them that, and they'd say, okay, go down here to the next house, the one with the green light bulb, to give those things down there, so I'd deliver those down there. Had no idea what those people were into, and I still don't know. I still don't know what they were into, but I suspect what, after living as long as I've lived, I think I know what they were into. Yeah, that was Tobacco Road. They named it that because they'd roll those big old, Hogs of tobacco down to to boats and ship them over to England, and England would make the the product and then send it back and charge us walking tax, and, and so we finally started making them in this country. But I worked in the cigarette factories for a while, and I know a lot about the tobacco industry. Yeah, it, every town had a tobacco road, and uh, it, that was had a, a tobacco industry. But yeah, I don't know how many people have recorded that. I know I have records of all this, but it's up in the hundreds all over the world. (laughs) There have been so many recording artists who have recorded one of your songs. Who has impressed you the most with what they did using something that you wrote? Oh, gee, I wouldn't know. I just wouldn't know. You don't know. When you hear a new cut, it's like seeing a new grandchild. You think a lot about it. You know, you you love it because it's your grandkid, but you don't know if it's going to be your favorite or not until you watch it and see what it does, you know, over the years. 
I don't know. Uh, I have had things recorded that I didn't care for at all, and they became big hits. My uh, intellectual uh, involvement ends at the writing of the song. I have produced songs and produced records, but my talent seems to be in the writing, and, and then the taking it from there belongs to other people. I'm not really gifted in that, and so I don't. it's hard to answer that. I've had a lot of songs that are have been recorded by people I've never even heard of before. And I'm looking now at some of the names down through, and this song is, yeah, is Roadhog, uh, the, the one that I had the international hit with. And it's, it's, it's people, comedians singing in Catalan language. Santa Sands, I've never heard it. Topo Gigolo, a Brazilian children TV series. Annabelle Zerclares, Mexican Accordion, uh, Lulu Santos, 1984 LP, Todo Azul, Brazilian Superstar, doing another style disco. You know what I mean. Just one musician after another, uh, down through the years, have tried these and have done well with them, I guess. I've received a lot of things from around the world, you know, songs. That, like, for instance, there was a girl that just recently died. See if I can get her name up. She just recently died because she um, she got so old. She's like Island, but she recorded a song called Midnight Bus that I wrote about a kid leaving out of Durham and coming down to the border of North South Carolina and uh, and and getting married and they fall out on the bus and uh, and it's just typical tragedy, lovers tragedy, young people. And this girl recorded this in Australia. And it was the song of the year last year in Australia. And I never did hear it. I haven't heard it yet. And the woman's dead. She just died. She uh, had recorded it years earlier, but it, it came out. They released it after a while and again, and this time it hit. And so you have strange things that happen like that. What makes a good song a good song? Uh, if you can get it cut. <laughs> That's what makes it <laughs> That's what makes a song a good song, because I'm a commercial songwriter. I'm not an art songwriter. This is misunderstood by a lot of people. In our system, our capitalist system, you write a song. Well, you can either be an art, an, an, an arty songwriter, or you can be a commercial songwriter. I'm a commercial songwriter. I needed to make the money. Because I was a poor kid, I needed to make the money. And so I watched songwriting over the years, and... It seemed like to me that the songs that lasted the longest became the most arty. They were written for commercial purposes to start with. Then after they hit, and then they hit again, they hit again, and all over the world. Then you could start looking at them as art, part of the culture. And that's the way I think commercial art, and this is true of graphic art, it's true of poet, poetry, it's true of theater and dance and everything. You just... Whatever pleases the, pub the public eventually becomes part of the culture that that public is in. And then, if you've had something to do with that, then you're recognized as being one of the artists of that particular culture. And you uh, you have started, uh, it's all started with a... Well, I've heard people say that, that the older songs, uh, the, the real old songs in this country, were the same way. You come up and you hear uh, Shenandoah and you think, well, that's a nice old song that somebody's written, you know, and they were artistic and they sweated over it and did all this stuff. 
But no, they were trying to make a living with it, and, and so they uh, it, it became popular. And now it's part of our culture, and that's the way songs are. They they're literature and they're art out of our culture. Who do you think the best songwriters from yesteryear were? From yesteryear, I don't know, but I think the little guy from uh, Savannah. What was his name? Johnny Mercer. Johnny Mercer. Yeah, I like his songs. Of course, I like the Beatles guys. They're good. They wrote beautiful stuff, too. When you're a writer, you don't really listen to stuff. You know, I, I like Roger Miller. I like Boodle and Felice Bryant. Uh, I liked Willie. I liked uh, all the guys that I knew up here in Nashville. I know up here in Nashville. They're dying uh, off, you know, as we get older. But they all, and the other night I saw Bobby Bear on the show out of Nashville, the Marty Stewart show. And he was Detroit City. Mel Tillis wrote that. And that's one of the most wonderful songs I have ever heard because it aptly describes the pathos of the people move from the south up to Detroit to make the cars. And that is just such a wonderful song. I've always liked that. But that's, that and Green Green Grass at Home is another great song. I don't know. You, you get to... When you're looking for love, you're looking for songs to make love to as an adjunct to your to your love making. It's just a kind of a ambiance that you're looking to surround the song that you that you with a girl that you want to be with. After you're married and happy, then you don't continue looking for for songs. You have your own songs that you're writing with your wife in everyday language. Yeah, you, so the the market for songs is for the for the kind of young and for the those looking for love. That's what I've noticed. I tend to be listening now to uh, classical music. I mean, quite frankly, I mean I I don't know what I'm listening to half of it, but I just I don't know. I feel comfortable, and the main reason for it is it doesn't have any lyrics. Lyrics determine what the song is saying to you. And if it has no lyrics, it just has soothing music, I can go to sleep. But I can't go to sleep listening to a song that's got good, heavy lyrics, and they're jamming them down my ears, you know? <laughs> like, I go into restaurants, man, and and if they've got music in there the, that is that is telling the story, and it's it's ear music, I, wanna, I just want some eye music and some, some, uh, some nice... Uh, uh, champagne music and so, you know, some uh, a nice steak song is good for me. <laughs> I don't want to hear any complicated ideas about stuff or any kind of discussionary things. I just want to hear just something nice that that puts me to sleep. I just love to to listen to, to music now. Just the word, just the music. You would say that you're more attracted to the melody in a song than the lyric. Uh, at this point in my life, yes. Oh, yes. See, that's why classical songs don't have lyrics. Now, some of them have lyrics, but like the opera stuff, but most classical tunes, they don't even have titles because they don't want to get involved with statements. See? So they call it a, you know, a rhapsody or they call it a something else, but they, they don't want to make statements because if you're going to go past one age group, say, the, what is it, about 90 years now we're living, if you're going to go 120 years from now, you don't want to get into subjects that are interesting now, 
with your lyrics because they may not be the same 100 or 200 years from now. So the great writers, they decided just to, to not, not use titles, just to opus this and opus that, and just let the music do the, do the talking. So now I can listen to uh, Vivaldi I love because he cooks and, and Bach cooks and, when I mean cooks, I mean you can pat your foot. I, you know, it, I mean, it, it, it's a wonder to me that drummer, that some drummer hadn't gone in and gotten some classical stuff and, 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 and that doesn't have a drum and, and just put really good drums to it. So I just, I don't know. I, I like all music, man. I just, I really do. I like all music. Do you know about the Spoleto Festival over in Charleston? What's that? Well, it's a classical, uh, it's a classical, um, it's, it's an upper class festival of, of music and dance and art and everything. And um, Susie and I try to go over there every year and they, they got a Hawaiian ukulele player that's playing this year that is just turning everybody's heads. Forgot his name, but he's, we, I've got to go. I'll stand in line to watch him. You might be talking about Jake Shimabukuro. I don't know his name. I just uh, have heard about him and heard that he was a, a ukulele player, and I think everybody is just thrilled with him. I, if, if his name, if that's his name, it's hard to remember. I just call him what? Jake? Yeah, Jake Shumabukuro. Well, Jake. I'll have to call him Jake from now on. Or Jake S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're going to try to see him, and uh, and we we like uh, we like dance, if it makes any sense. A lot of the dancers don't make any sense. The ones that do, boy, are the most wonderful things in the world. And we like I like string quartets now. I'm getting to the place where I like string quartets. But this is hobby stuff that we're talking about now. That professionally, I've been a songwriter, you know, a country and a rock and roll songwriter. And, of course, I, ha- I did have a classical hit one time with Chet when, when he cut with the uh, Boston Pops. But yeah, I've had the... Pretty good life, man. You're listening to an interview with songwriter John D. Loudermilk. I wanted to ask you a few questions about some of your songs. Okay. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind your song, Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye? I don't know. It just occurred to me. I don't know where these things come from. They come out of the mist, and I think the mist goes from my ear to the furthest part of the universe. I think that these songs, the, that all songs, all music, all art is the same all over the universe. The same motifs are, are with the guys huddling down in the middle of Mars or the guys living in the mud huts on the moon or whatever. I, I know that, that you talk to other songwriters and, and they say, well, God, man, that's where it comes from. It's from God. And I think that's probably right. Like everything else comes from, the air you're breathing right now comes from it, so why not songs? I just think that, that the whole mist that just covers the whole universe is just full of this stuff, inventions as well. And and because uh, you'll, you'll pop, you know, as you go down into uh, into your sleep there where you where you sleep real deep, deeply, um, just before you get down there, you'll wake up with a song idea. And as you're coming up out of sleep, you get up around your, I forgot now what they call it, but it's a level just before you wake up, and you wake up early with a song idea. Where does that come from, man? 
I don't know. So it must come from the same thing where the songs come from to the poor bastards on the other side of the universe, you know, who who have a a four-string guitar or a five-string guitar and who are, uh, they look like us, fairly much like us, and they they play guitar and they and they I think we're of an inner universal type form. That's what the Bible says that we look like the guy who made us, and I'm sure that's true on the other side of the universe because he made that too. And matter of fact, I'm thinking about universal uh, copyrights. I think copyright should not only be of this planet but all planets. Interesting. Yeah. We're talking with songwriter John D. Loudermilk. Another song that you wrote, it's been recorded by many people, Break My Mind. Let me tell you about that. Uh, during the 60s, uh, when that was written, it was a lot of dope uh, stuff was going around the music community. It was like Break My Mind, Break My Heart is a motif that we write a lot in the country music about broken hearts. If if you've got your heart broken and you're stoned at the same time, you can have a broken mind. You understand oh. that? And so this was a guy that has, has that has a broken mind. Break my mind. Break my mind. Break my mind. If you leave, you're going to leave a babbling fool behind, man. That's uh, that's where that idea came from. Because there was a lot of uh, you know emphasis put on that all those social customs back during the. 60s, and that was just part of it. And George IV, George Hamilton IV, recorded that. He recorded Abilene. Several more of my songs. The Everly Brothers also recorded one of your songs. I'm talking about Ebony Eyes. Have you ever heard that song? Yes, sir. Well, that song, they have to do it every time they go to to Europe because it was a big hit over there. They don't do it in this country because it, it didn't go over well in this country because... We just had two airliners run together over Brooklyn. You remember when that happened? Yes, two sir. airliners ran together over Brooklyn, and all the trash fell all over town, and it was just a terrible time for that particular song to come out. And so it didn't hit here, but it did hit in England and all over the English-speaking world. Oh, yeah, that's one of... I'm very proud of that song. That was... that. That's a... I love it every time I hear anything those boys do. I just love their voices so much. You're listening to our interview with songwriter John D. Loudermilk. When someone listens to one of your songs, what do you hope they get out of that experience? I don't know. I don't know. It's just a, what do you do when when you look at a nice piece of wallpaper, you know, or a, or a nice, well designed automobile. It's just a. It's something that you're that it's kind of. Necessary if you if you create if if that's been given to you to pass it on to everybody to think about or to enjoy. That's the way I think of it when I see a, a song of mine recorded or I see a, an award on the wall of one of them. Uh, I'm very proud I was able to give somebody some enjoyment. Uh, uh, you know because just like the songs I grew up and listened to, Eddie Arnold was a big force in my life. I later met him and became good friends with him. And had a then you could tell me goodbye. He had a hit in the country field with that song. But all of his songs, I remember every word of every one of them. They were so important to me. And just to think that a song that you write is appreciated by somebody that you've never seen down into another age group 
far off in the distance. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very rewarding experience. It really is. Well, my last question. Mm-hmm. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, let me tell you, that my wife and I went to Florida this, this winter, and we went down to Palm Beach. And I'd always heard that Palm Beach was really for the flucy people. But we found it be, we found it to be the nicest, kindest, gentle place that we've ever been down in Florida. There was no graffiti, uh, no people out in the screen, out in the street screaming, nothing. It was just very quiet and very reserved. And the architecture, of course, down there and the landscaping is just out of this world. But we went to a museum called the Norton Museum. It was, it was, it's an art museum there in uh, Palm Beach. West Palm Beach. So while we were there, I, I always get a, take a wheelchair and go around to the paintings so I can sit and look at the paintings in the wheelchair. If they don't have chairs, and a lot of them are starting to have chairs now and couches and things in the big room. But I like to take a wheelchair and go to a, a piece of art and just sit there by myself and look at it and let let the the artist talk to me, you know. And so out in the lobby, they had some plaques up here on the wall where different people had said, different artists had said different things that were very, um, very intellectually valid. And I was just looking for my little notation of some of them. I don't have it with me right here. But I know that, you know, they had Picasso and, and uh, they had guys like that that, that they were talking about art. And so I was writing them down on a little piece of paper to use later as song ideas. And so a little entourage came by, a black lady put a nurse pushing an older woman, I mean, up in, she must have been 90-some years old, and a couple of other lady friends of hers. And they came by, and the, the little old lady in the wheelchair said, that's a nice shirt you have on. And I turned around and I said, well, that's very kind of you. I said, that's a nice gift that you just gave me. Now let me give you a gift back. And I said, to live is such a miracle. How argue with those who never will? One could, I suppose, but what the hell? And her eyes lit up and she said, what do you do? I said, I'm a country music songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee. And she said, I've never heard a country song before. And I said, oh, yes, you have. <laughs> because that was, Ozhnevinsky is a, was a poet from Russia that Susie and I saw at LSU in the 70s. He had escaped Russia and was touring around America giving readings of his poetry. And he said, he said that. That was a translation, English translation of one of his poems. To live is such a miracle. How can you argue with someone who never will live? One could, I suppose, but what the hell? And I, I've always wanted to take that and to use that somehow in a song. So that's a song that I'm in the process of writing. I've been 30 years, 40 years thinking that thought. And when she said that, when I told her that, her eyes lit up, and a tear came in her eyes, and they pushed her on out to the car and put her, <laughs> took her on to, back to wherever she lived. But that was just a nice little thing that has to do with art, and I thought it would fit in now. And 
that's something I'd like to leave with uh, with your audience and with you. I've never met you, Paul, but I'd like to someday. And Likewise. Yeah. I do appreciate you uh, calling me and, and asking me to do this, and I hope I haven't taken up too much time. Sir, it has been a pleasure, and I have learned a lot about your work. I'm sure everyone who has been listening in has learned a lot about your work as well. It was not long ago I was actually near the town that you're in, and I thought, what if I knocked on his door? Well, you couldn't because I have a gate. <laughs> I have a, I've got a gate, but if you call me first, I'll be glad to open the gate and close it behind you. <laughs> we can spend the afternoon talking and just taking it further from here. But yeah, I'd be well, glad to see you anytime you come by. All right, Mr. Loudermilk. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope we do get to meet. Thank you so much, and good night to you. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.